Genesis chapter 14, just going to read the whole chapter, because we're going to look at the whole chapter tonight. I was going to break it up into two, and I decided, eh, eh, let's just do the whole chapter. What the heck? <laughs> um, kind of is one story, so I hate to break it up, though there's a lot to say about Melchizedek, so maybe we'll just focus mostly on that last part. But anyway, Genesis chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoer. All these joined together in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Kedorlaomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedorlaomer and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shavah Kiriathayim, and the Horites in their, mountain of, in, their, in their mountain of Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who dwell in Hazazan Tamar. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoer, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Sidim against Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of nations, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol, the brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and brought back and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, for he was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of, or tithe of all. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich." except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of, me, of the men who are with me. Aner, Eschol, Mamre, let them take their portion. 
thus far the reading of God's word. A lot of weird names there. I had, I had to practice to say Kidder Leomer. <laughs> Yeah, I saw that too. Um, some say that that is the case. Some say that that is no longer um, defensible. But yeah, either way, yeah, it's possible. Um, yeah, so there you have it, uh, Genesis chapter 14. Um, just a recap what we saw in Genesis chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13, Abram comes back to the promised land. This is after his... A uh, little test of faith that he had uh, during the famine in the, in the promised land where he left and uh, kind of brought all of the promises of God into jeopardy by leaving the promised land and letting his wife go. Well, he comes back to the promised land and, and another test of faith comes his way. And this time Abram shows himself uh, well, acquits himself well, as there is an argument between between at least the herdsmen of Lot and the herdsmen of Abram, as you had all these livestock, all these herds, in a land that is, well, limited, right? Limited resources, too many, too many livestock. So uh, Abram, being gracious, offers to Lot, says, you take your pick. If you go one way, I'll go the other. If you go that way, I'll go the other. And Lot, of course, looks and acts by looking, so he walks by sight, not by faith. He looks in the Jordan Valley, sees that it is well watered, sees that it is like the garden of the Lord, so it, it's kind of Edenic in its, in its uh, lushness. Uh, it reminds him of Egypt, where there's uh, plentiful water and plentiful crops and everything. So Lot, walking by sight, not by faith, goes to the Jordan Valley where the, city of Sodom, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah are. And we see that he pitches his tent outside of Sodom. Now, last time we looked at Lot's progression, right? He was uh, outside of Sodom. Here we see that he's dwelling in Sodom. Uh, when we get to chapter 18 or 19, we see that he's actually in the city gates of Sodom. He's got a, a leadership position in the city of Sodom. So Lot... Uh, starts to compromise more and more. Abram is blessed by uh, trusting in the Lord, staying in the promised land, and the Lord uh, rewards Abram by renewing the covenant promises. He tells him again to look at the stars and see if you can count them. That's how your descendants will be, and I will give you this land and walk to and fro throughout the land. And Abram continues to dwell in tents and pitch his tent and and he begins to, continues to build altars to the Lord, again, uh, praising uh, the Lord Most High. So that was last time. Now as we come into chapter 14, well, we're going to see another test of faith, in a sense, here, where um, Abram is going to rescue his nephew Lot. Now, this is all in the context of this sort of battle going on between rival kings, okay, uh, we'll get into that in a moment, but uh, we're going to see Lot is captured, Abram comes to the rescue, and then we're going to see this mysterious figure, Melchizedek, that kind of comes out of nowhere, if you will, and blesses Abram. Uh, we'll look into this in a moment. Now, you may be like, well, okay, there's a lot of names in this chapter. Why is Melchizedek uh, kind of mysterious? Well, because uh, Psalm 110 and the book of Hebrews 
uh, plays a lot off of this idea of Melchizedek. And what we're going to see, I'm just going to show you my cards now, Melchizedek is a type of Christ. Okay? His name, everything about him points to Jesus Christ, as we'll see uh, when we get to it. So without further ado, I want to get to the Melchizedek part, because that's the cool part. But we'll get through that here. Let's uh, look at this passage, though, uh, under this heading, that the Lord fights for his people and rescues them. And we're going to see that he's going to rescue them in the person of Jesus Christ. Even though Abram here is the one who rescues Lot, Abram, in a sense, is a bit of a redeemer, if you will. Uh, And that also points forward to the act of Christ uh, in his uh, role as a redeemer for us. So the Lord fights for his people and rescues them through Jesus Christ. So, um, only three points tonight. How about that? (laughs) We're back on the three-point bandwagon. Um, The first point is, it's going to take up most of the chapter. It's verses 1 through 12 as we look at this battle of the kings going on here. Um, now, because of the person that I am and the way and the movies I watch and the things that I like, if heaven has a blockbuster, <laughs> I'm checking this video out. <laughs> I'm checking out the video of, this, of the battle of these kings because I like these kind of things. Um, when I, was, I, would, I, would, I would love to be a fly on a chariot wheel somewhere as this is going on. Um, because what you see here is, let's face it, this is probably something that is very common to this period of time in this location. Kings battling one another. Rival kings going over to an area. It's like, hey, that looks nice. I think I'll take that. And, and you've got these warlords, right? Um, you've got these kings. A bunch of names are mentioned here in verses 1 and 2. Uh, in the first verse, you've got this what seems to be sort of like an alliance between four kings, Amraphel, uh, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedolaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations. Uh, some may, you know, if you have an English standard version, may say king of the Goyim, right? That's just a transliteration of the Hebrew word for the Goy. Goyim is uh, the nations. Uh, that would sort of... Um, correlate to the Greek word ethne, the nations, or the Gentiles. Jews often refer to Gentiles as the goi. So uh, we are the people, the others. So we're not sure what that means, king of nations, king of the goyim. What you see here, at least from two of the locations, we kind of have an idea of where two of these locations are. Shinar, well, that's where Abram came from. Right? That's, that's southern Mesopotamia in, in, in the area between the two rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates, probably close to Ur, somewhere in that region. So this would be uh, modern-day southeast Iraq. Uh, Elam, more than likely, is Persia or close to Persia. Uh, so we're looking at, uh, more than likely, these other two places, Elisar and King of the Nations. They're probably eastern, east of, of the Promised Land, and they're coming to the west. They're coming... More than likely, you know, what, king, what do kings do, right? They gather together people and they, they conquer lands. Let, let's add more to our, you know, to our lands. Let's add more to our kingdom. Now, more than likely, the leader of this band is Cato Leomer because he seems to, uh, uh, his name is prominent here and then later um, when the nations rebel. So you've got this kind of block of, Eastern, 
nations coming from Mesopotamian Easter, uh, east of that, so Iraq, Persia, that area, and they're coming east. They're coming into the Fertile Crescent. They're coming into uh, what is often called the Levant or that area, you know, the Jordan Valley, because it's very, uh, it's very uh, luscious. It's very prosperous. Uh, there's a lot of good land there, and there's a lot of cities there. So you've got those four kings, and you've got another group of five kings here. You've got Bera, the king of Sodom, where Lot is living. Bersha, the king of Gomorrah. Again, those two cities probably south of the Dead Sea. Shinab, king of Adma. We don't know exactly where that is. Shemeber, king of Zeboim. And, and the king of Bela, and we're told that that is Zoar. Now, if Zoar is going to play a little bit of a role later because that's where Lot wants to flee to when he leaves Sodom and Gomorrah. So really, you're talking about cities in that Jordan Valley area. Again, very um, good land, uh, very well watered, at least at the time. So we see that these kings do battle in this area called the Valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Now, apparently, this uh, alliance of four kings conquers the Jordan Valley kings. So the eastern kings conquer the Jordan Valley kings, and they put them into in subjection. They subjugate them for 12 years, right? And then in the 13th year, they said, okay, well, we're tired of the yoke of these kings. So in the 13th year, they rebel. And of course, when you rebel against a warlord, what does he want to do? Well, he wants to quash the rebellion. So in the 14th year, you see again here in verse 5, Cadillac and the kings that were with him. So this is where you get the idea that he's probably the chief of these warlords, the chief of these kings here, because he's mentioned, and then they don't mention necessarily the other kings until later. So he gathers his alliance that were with him, and they came. Now you could, you know, if you have some Bible maps that talk about this, or maybe a study Bible might have a map, they, they come in from the east, they kind of go down through the Jordan Valley around the south end of the Salt Sea, and then they come back up again to the north. And as they're going through here, it's interesting some of the names that they're mentioned here. You get the Rephaim, and you're like, well, who are these guys? Well, the Rephaim are often referred to as the giants, right? You'll see these names um, uh, refer to uh, giants later on. Um, in uh, some other places. Anyway, they're the giants, right? These are these would be people of large stature, um, some you know going up to uh, perhaps nine feet tall. You know, perhaps Goliath is is a descendant of these people. Um, you also see the same thing here later on. The Amalekites are also uh, oftentimes uh, noted as being very large people. So they're coming. This must be a very strong force that Cadillac is, is um, uh, leading, that they can beat these giants, that they can beat these combined forces. So they come through and they, uh, they, they attack the Rephaim and Ashtaroth. They, they attack all these other kings, the Horites, and so on and so forth. Then they turn back and came to El Mishpat and attacked the country, the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who dwelt there. And then in verse 8, those five kings that had been subjugated, and now they've rebelled. They're like, uh-oh, you know, <laughs> this Cadillac guy is coming after us. We better, you know, let's get together. Let's defend ourselves. So the king of Sodom, now they're not named here. I, I, I was kind of going back and forth. I'm not sure 
if verse 2 is just speaking of this battle ahead of time or if this is two separate battles. Because you notice they're named in verse 2, but they're not named in verse 8. Maybe it's, it could be later, 13 years, you know, because if you conquer a bunch of kings, what do you do? You, well, you slay the, the, <laughs> the conquered kings, and perhaps these are the, the new kings or what have you. But anyway, you've got these five kings come out, Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, and they join battle in the valley of Sidim again. So you've got Kedalaomer and all these other guys, four kings against five, they do battle. They do battle, and the rebellion is quashed, as we see here in verse 10. Now, the valley of Siddim was full of asphalt pits, which is interesting. Um, you, if you have ESV, does it say bitumen pits? You know what it says in the Hebrew? It says pit pits. <laughs> You're like, what's a pit pit? A pit pit is a big pit. <laughs> That's what it is. Yeah, yeah, Hebrew didn't have... Um, bolding or italicizing or underlining back in the day. So if you wanted to emphasize something, you repeated it. So a pit pit is a big pit, right? If it was a pit pit pit, that would be a really, really big pit, right? That's why in Isaiah 6, you know, when they mention God as thrice holy, he's not holy, he's not holy, holy, he's holy, holy, holy. It's it's emphasizing his holiness to the superlative degree. So I only mention it because I thought it was kind of interesting. Pit pits. So they flee, they, they flee and they fall into these pits. And then the rest flee and they go back into the mountains. So you've got Kedalaomer comes back. He conquers the rebellion. He and his forces conquer the rebellion. And as often what they do is they pillage the villages, right? They come in and they take all the goods and they make sure that they'll, they'll never uprise again. And included in all of that is poor old Lot. Lot just happens, you know, this is what happens, right? You know, you walk by sight and not by faith. And you end up you know, in all the wrong places, right? You end up in the wrong place at the wrong time. And poor old Sodom who had moved his tent from outside of, or poor old Lot who had moved his tent from outside of Sodom, now living in the city, he gets captured along with a bunch of other people. Now, we're not sure exactly when this took place. It just said it came to pass in the days. Um, we do know this much for sure. Abram was 75 years old when he left Ur to come to the promised land. He is 86 years old later when um, uh, Ishmael is born. So it's sometime between the ages of 75 and 86 that this happens. Okay? Um, as I said, the events recorded here, this is just a sampling of what you would probably have seen going on at, you know, in a day ending in Y in the, in the ancient Near East during this time. Right? This, is, this is normal for this time. You know, think of when we look back in Genesis chapter 6, and it talked about the men of renown, the men of old, right? or Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. These are just warlords. Right? This is what happens in a fallen world filled with fallen people. You've got people who who believe, uh, who buy into the rule of might makes right, right? Everything is a, is, is a, is a rule of power, right? So if I have the, if I have the strength, I'm going to conquer uh, and take what I want. Uh, and that, like I said, all too common in this day and age. So you have here this great battle, and in the process, Lot gets captured. That's really the main point of this. It's to say that Lot 
not only is Lot where he shouldn't be, he should be with Abram in the promised land, but he's in Sodom living in the city, which is a wicked city. And as a result, he gets captured and he gets caught up in all of this warfare between these rival kings. Now, in many ways, what we see here, as I said, is an illustration of what was common in that day and age. And it's also something that's just kind of, if you think about it, it's really just kind of common to God's people in any day and age, right? You know, um, the people of God have lived in every and any political situation you can think of, right? They've lived during um, times of, you know, relative anarchy like you have here, just might makes right type of ruling. They've lived in kingdoms. They lived under empires. They lived under, you know, other kinds of things, uh, dictatorships. Now we're living in a, you know, quasi-democratic republic. Uh, the people of God have been in pretty much every single situation. That's why, you know, in a sense, God's people are not so much a political organization as we are, you know, a spiritual organization. We can exist and adapt to pretty much anything. But what you see here also, in a way, is reminiscent of what we'll see later uh, in, not just in Genesis, but later in redemptive history. You know, this, this idea of the kings of the earth being gathered, the kings of the earth uniting against the people of God. You see that in uh, Psalm 2. You see that all throughout Revelation, um, all the way to the end of the age. Uh, you know, the, God's people are going to get caught up in the affairs of the world, right? That's just kind of common. Uh, that's just the price of doing business in uh, a fallen world. So you have here this battle of the kings. And now in verses 13 through 16, you're going to see Abram to the rescue. Abram to the rescue. So we see here one who has escaped. He came and told Abram, the Hebrew. By the way, that's the first time that we see the word Hebrew in the Old Testament. Um, it is a derivation of the word uh, Eber. We've seen that. That's, that's um, uh, Abram's this, uh, ancestor. Came in the line of Peleg, line of Shem, uh, Eber. Uh, the word in, in Hebrew for, that here for Hebrew is, uh, is Ibri. So... Uh, similar, derived from the same word. Uh, Ibri? Uh, Ab I, you know, I didn't look it up. I think you're right. Yeah, I think now when I look, remember looking at my lexicon, I think that's what it means. Um, but anyway, so someone escapes this battle. Now, this is providential, right? God is orchestrating these events. Someone who has escaped the battle comes... And, tell, and, and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol, the brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. Now when Abram heard that his brother, his nephew, I mean brother here is just being used to talk about relative. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now, again, just a comment here on that. The, the city Dan was not known as the city Dan in the days of Abram. Okay, this is, I've, I've mentioned this before. Uh, a lot of times what you see is Moses will insert uh, 
place names, location names that were uh, uh, common during his day, and we'll kind of write them back into the narrative. Sometimes you might have a, a later editor to the to the Pentateuch put date, you know, you know, more recent city names and locations back into the Pentateuch. Uh, the town here would not have been known as Dan because at this time Dan wasn't even born yet. <laughs> okay, uh, the name the Dan is one of the uh, sons of Jacob. Jacob doesn't come for some time. But anyway, so he takes his 318 servants and he goes and pursues Cato Laomer and his forces. Verse 15, he divided his forces against them by night and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So Dan is, right, Dan is in the north end of what would be the promised land. It was often considered the northernmost uh, city in the promised land because oftentimes they would talk about the promised land is from Dan to Beersheba. That's like saying from New York to L.A., okay? It's just saying here you've got the two extremes and everything in between. So Dan would be the north of the promised land, while Damascus would be north of that in, in what would be modern-day uh, Lebanon. So he pursues them, and then uh, apparently he won because in verse 16 he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. Now that's quite a feat, right? I mean, I don't know how many people Cater Leomer had, but I'm sure it was way in excess of 318 men. <laughs> uh, it kind of reminds you of Gideon, right, with his 300 men. Uh, and you can almost sense that perhaps that was exactly how Abram uh, fought and defeated a force far larger than his. Now, we'll find out later, right, when Melchizedek blesses Abram, he says, the Lord gave you the battle, right? It's not because you are such a great general, Abram. Same thing with Gideon. It's not because you are such a great general, Gideon. It's because the Lord gave you the battle. In fact, that was the whole point of shrinking Gideon's army down to 300 people in the first place. So that the Lord will get the glory, right? Because Gideon wanted to go with all of his people, and then, you know, it got cut down, and then the Lord said, nope, still too many. And then finally you get down to 300, he's like, that's exactly where I want you to be. So anyway, Abram comes to the rescue. He gathers his allies. These are just Canaanites that Abram is um, living near and doing business with. And he has these 318 trained men, which are, uh, it says here, people born in his own house. So these would be people that were servants that perhaps he brought from Ur, maybe from Haran, or maybe people that he brought from Egypt, people that were uh, in his own household. And it goes to show that servants back in those days were not, when you see the word slave or servant, okay, we're, don't, don't think American slavery. Think of someone who was a hireling more than likely, someone who worked and would have been considered really a member of the household. Because many of these same servants, when Abram is given the, uh, the, the sign of circumcision, they'll get circumcised because they're part of Abram's household. <laughs> so not just his sons, but all who are in his household. So he gathers these servants. He says these are trained servants. Uh, and then they, he goes in this battle. And, and we see here um, that he engages in some tactics, right? He divides his forces. He attacks them at night. So, you know, he's not just out there, you know, you know like you see the British 
you know, fighting in, in the Revolutionary War and they're marching in their formations and they're kind of shooting at each other across an open battlefield. No, Abram's like, okay, I've got 300 men. I know I've got a larger force. We're going to attack them at night. We're going to split our forces. This is what we're going to do. So you can still plan and trust in the Lord at the same time, right? That's what we see that in uh, Proverbs 16.9, right? You know how that one goes. The man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Um, another uh, famous proverb is Proverbs 21.31, which says something very similar to that. Proverbs 21, verse 31, the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but deliverance is from the Lord. Again, the Lord fights for his people. We may be the instruments he uses, but the Lord is the one who fights. The victory comes uh, from the Lord. I wanted to look at um, Psalm 3 as well. Psalm 3 has a heading that says this is of David when he fled from Absalom. So if you know that story, you know that's a kind of a sad affair in David's life where as great a man as David was, he was not the best father in the world, <laughs> didn't discipline his children, probably should have taken the rod to his children a little bit more. Um, but anyway, here, that's a short psalm. Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him from God. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory in the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. I almost maybe picture Abram, perhaps, singing along with that psalm as he uh, devises and, and has his enemies delivered into him. So again, after achieving victory, Abram retrieves all the plunder, right? That's what he says here. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people. So I said here, this is another test of faith, right? For, for Abram from the Lord. What did the Lord, what was one of the things the Lord promised Abram? He said, I will make your name great, right? And after this battle, right, Abram, his name was exalted because of this, right? In fact, that's what his name means. It means exalted father. But more than that, Abram becomes a force to be reckoned with, right? People take account of Abram. So the Lord promised to make Abram's name great, and also to bless those who bless him, and all the nations of the world will be blessed, and he will be a blessing to them as well. And again, you see here, in a sense, as Lot, who is considered righteous, right? We've talked about this last time. Lot's probably not the ideal Christian, but he is at least considered righteous Lot. The Lord delivers his people. The Lord delivered Lot by sending Abram to rescue him. And in this sense, Abram prefigures Christ. What does Christ do for us, right? We are, in a lot of ways, like Lot. 
trapped in a world like Sodom. And the Lord sends His Son to us to rescue us, to uh, bring us out of bondage, to bring us out of slavery. So just as Abram left to go rescue Lot, Jesus, of course, leaves the glories of heaven to go on a rescue mission, as we see in Philippians 2, where he leaves, he takes the form of a servant, he comes into the flesh, and he goes obediently to death on a cross. So there you have the battle of the kings, Abram to the rescue, and now finally, uh, Abram and Melchizedek in verses uh, 17 through 24. First, we start off here with the king of Sodom. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Cato-Leomer and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men who went with me, Aner, Askal, and Mamre. Let them take their portion. So after this great victory that Abram wins by the hand of the Lord, two kings come out to meet uh, Abram in the, on the field of battle. The first one is the king of Sodom. The second one is Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Now I'm going to look at the king of Sodom first, because I really want to save Melchizedek for last. Right, the king of Sodom comes out, and he says, rather tersely, give me the people, keep the stuff. Kind of think of the line from the Godfather, right? Leave the gun, take the cannoli. But, you know, give me the people, you can have the stuff. He doesn't say, oh, by the way, Abram, thanks for rescuing me, <laughs> or thanks for defeating these kings who have subjected us for so long. No, no thank you, no gratitude. Just give me the people and take the stuff and you can go. Now, perhaps Abram knew the reputation of Sodom, I would imagine a city like Sodom and Gomorrah, their reputation preceded them. Um, but he responds in faith in verses 22 and 23. Again, this is a test of faith because the Lord has promised to take care of him, right? What is, we'll find this out in the next chapter uh, when um, God says to Abram, he says, do not, in fact, just look at chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, so after the battle that you see here in chapter 14, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Uh, I like that translation better than some of the other ones where it says your reward shall be very great. No, the Lord is saying, I am your reward. Right? And you, you see this comes after uh, Abram refuses to take money from Sodom. In fact, he says, now we're not sure where he says it, but apparently he said, I have made a vow to the Lord. That's what he means when he says, I, took, I raised my hand to the Lord. 
that I will take nothing from anybody, lest they could say, I made Abram rich. In other words, he's like, I'm going to trust in the Lord. The Lord told me to leave my home. The Lord brought me to this land. The Lord has promised me to, be, to bless me, to make my name great, to give me many uh, offspring. So I'm going to trust in the Lord to, to take care of me. I'm going to trust in the Lord to enrich me. I am not going to uh, be in the debt of any person. So he refuses uh, the king of Sodom's um, kind of terse, uh, generosity, if you want to put those in quotes. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's why I put generosity in quotes. Yeah, yeah, the pit pet. And notice how here Abram refers to God. He calls him um, the Lord God Most High. Now, I'm, I've struggled with this. I couldn't find anything in the commentaries that talked about this. Um, because we know that the, the Lord there, where you see the Lord um, in um, verse 22, it's capital L-O-R-D, we know that's the covenant name, Jehovah or Yahweh. And from Scripture, we know that that's revealed to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Um, so I wonder if this is a, a mosaic kind of insertion of the covenant name uh, of God here. Because I, I don't know of any other place where Abram would have been given the name. Because uh, as far as I could tell, Exodus 3 is where that name is first revealed. But I do like the name God Most High. That is the name El Elyon. You may have heard that. El Elyon. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's, it's referred to, the, the phrase there... El Elyon, it's speaking of the highest God, the, the God who is above. The God of Abram is the highest God. He is the one who possesses heaven and earth, and that's the same phrase that you see um, in the beginning, right, in Genesis 1, the maker, God who created the heavens and the earth. It's the same phrase there. He is the one who created them. He is the one who owns them. Uh, Psalm 24.1 says that, God is the one who owns all things, right? He is the, he is the maker. He is the, uh, the one who uh, owns them. Psalm 24, uh, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's in the fullness, in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell in them. Uh, if you might know Psalm 50, Verse 12, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine in all its fullness. Uh, the Lord owns all things because he created all things. He is the one who is the possessor of heaven and earth. So Abram is trusting in the Lord. He is, he is putting his faith in the Lord to bless him, to provide for him, to watch over him. He is not going to take anything from the hand of the king of Sodom. And now let's go to my favorite part here, this mysterious Melchizedek. So we saw two kings, right? The king of Sodom comes out, and we see here the king of Melchizedek, or I should say Melchizedek, the king of Salem. He comes out with bread and wine, and we see that he is the priest of God Most High. He is the priest of El Elyon, which is interesting because for all we know, Melchizedek is a Canaanite. Okay, he is, I mean, 
really, they're all kind of, no one is Jewish here yet, okay? We, we, can we agree on that? No one's Jewish here yet because circumcision hasn't been, uh, hasn't been instituted yet. But here you have Melchizedek. He is the king of Salem, which would have been in the land of Canaan. King of Salem, that's just Jerusalem. Uh, he is here, and he comes out, and we see that he is a priest. And, and his name, which is interesting in itself, it means, my king is righteous. And he is the king of righteousness. He is the king of Salem, which means the king of peace. And he is the priest of the God Most High. Now, I mean, some things you could see, you know, that point to Christ do so in a veiled way. Some are doing so with big neon signs, okay? King of righteousness, king of peace, priest of the Most High God. Okay, I mean, that's like connecting all the dots from Melchizedek straight to Jesus. So he comes out, he brings bread and wine. If you want to make of that, oh, this is communion? Eh, uh, bread and wine, that would just would have been normal food and drink. But it is interesting that it is bread and wine. But he comes out to bless Abram. But not only that, look at it, he's providing for him. He's bringing a meal to him. Right? Isn't that what the Lord does for us? He provides for us. He comes to him. He provides a meal for him, and then he blesses him. And we're going to see this in a moment when we look at the book of Hebrews, how he treat, how the author there treats it. But the author is going to make a big deal about the fact that it is the greater who blesses the lesser. Right? So Abram, in receiving this blessing from Melchizedek, in a sense, is coming under him. Because Melchizedek is being put in the greater, in the place of the, of, the, of the higher position here by blessing him. So he brings out bread and wine. He is a priest of, of God most high. And notice how he gives credit to the Lord. He says, blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. I'm sure Abram knew this, but Melchizedek tells him, the Lord delivered your enemies into your hand. Don't think for a second that your great military uh, genius won this battle. Now, again, on the surface, it doesn't seem like this guy is anything special. He just comes out, other than the fact that he seems to be a Canaanite priest of the same God that Abram uh, worships. But the scriptures have a lot more, as I said, to say about this. So I want to turn to Psalm 110. <coughs> I think I read somewhere... That Psalm 110 is the most cited psalm in the New Testament. Uh, for various reasons. Um, it's quoted quite a bit in the book of Hebrews because of the Melchizedek connection. But uh, for verses 1 and 2, it's, it's quoted a lot in the Gospels. To uh, Jesus himself quotes this to prove his own uh, divinity. So Psalm 110, uh, a psalm of David... Uh, goes like this. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. 
Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the days of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. So you've got this psalm. It's a messianic psalm that talks about this king who is also a priest, a priest king, right? Does that sound like anybody we might know from the New Testament? <laughs> okay, A priest king. And as I said, Jesus uses this, Psalm 110 verse 1, when he is... Um, refuting the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees later in the Gospels when they're asking him a whole bunch of questions and Jesus answers all their questions and stumps their questions. Then he says, let me ask you a question. He says, how does David say the Lord said to my Lord? If David, you know, if they say that the Messiah is the son of David, well, how can David say the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. In other words, he is saying, look, I am the son of David. I am the Messiah, right? And David says to me, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until you make your enemies your footstool. In other words, he stumps the Pharisees. He stumps the Sadducees with this question. But for our purposes, our uh, concern is verse 4, where it says, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You, the Messiah, are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, what makes this interesting is where did the priests come from in, in Old Testament Israel? They came, yeah, they came from the tribe of Levi. When you get to Exodus, right? Uh, Levi is... Uh, Aaron, who is a Levite, is given the role of the high priest, and the high priest was to go through his lineage. And then the rest of the Levites are given the privilege to serve in the tabernacle to assist Aaron and his sons as high priest. So the priestly line comes from Aaron. But here we see that the Messiah is a different kind of priest. He's not a priest after the order of Aaron. He is not a priest after the order of Levi. He is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And as the author of Hebrews is going to make a point, it's like that trumps being a priest in the order of Levi. So for that, I want to turn to Hebrews chapter 5. Don't worry, we're almost done. Hebrews chapter 5. This is going to lead into Hebrews 7. In Hebrews verse 5, chapter 5, verse 5. Now again, the, the, the argument in the book of Hebrews is the author is presenting Christ as far superior than 
pretty much everything in the Old Testament system. <laughs> okay? he's, he's superior to the angels. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to the priesthood. He mediates a, a superior covenant. He offers a superior sacrifice. He labors in a superior temple. All of these things Christ is. And, he, and the author is making this point because his readers are tempted to turn back right? Because of persecution, because of dispersion. They're like, maybe we should just go back to worshiping the old ways. And the author's like, you can't do that. The old ways are done, right? You can't go back to something that is gone, right? It's, it, you know, as, as one of my professors in seminary said, the old covenant is like the jetway that leads you onto the airplane. And once the airplane's gone, you can't go back to the jetway <laughs> because it's no longer there. Right? It, it has served its purpose. It, it, took, it took you from the airport to the airplane, and now the jetway has served its purpose. So you can't go back. That's my 10-second uh, synopsis of the book of Hebrews. But in chapter 5, verse 5, he says, So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. It's a quote from Psalm 2. Verse 6, as he says in another place, remember the, uh, the Old Testament did not have chapters and verses, so uh, he's citing this from memory, the author is. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Hey, there's our verse from Psalm 110, verse 4. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, this is all talking about Christ, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So the author is making a point here is that Jesus has been appointed, has been ordained as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then he goes on, verse 11, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Okay, so <laughs> the author's going to pause here. He's going to go off into something else in chapter 6. But he's like, I want to explain this Melchizedek more to you, and I'd love to, but you've become dull of hearing. <laughs> All right. It is a warning, right. Yeah, they, they've become a little... Uh, lacks. He says, it goes on, he says, you should, have be, you should be teachers by now, you're unskilled. And then he goes into a great warning passage in chapter 6, but then he comes back to it in chapter 7. Now, I could read the whole chapter, there's a lot there, but let's just start in verse 1 of chapter 7. So he comes back, because you can see that in chapter 6, verse 20. Uh, Jesus, he is the forerunner, has entered for us, even uh, Christ having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So he, he picks up on that thought again. And he says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. Okay, so here, he's just pulling the language right out of Genesis. Here is this Melchizedek, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom Abraham also gave a tenth part of all, First being translated, now he's talking about his name, King of Righteousness, and said then also King of Salem, meaning King of Peace. So here the author is pulling this out. Okay, you've got this historical figure named Melchizedek who meets Abraham on the field of battle. The author of Hebrews is saying there's significance to this. 
king of righteousness, king of peace. With, and then he says, without father or without mother, without genealogy. Okay, let me pause there. Okay, this is not to say that Melchizedek just popped into existence out of nowhere. It is to say that as far as the scriptures are concerned, we don't know who his father was. We don't know who his mother was. We don't know his genealogy. It's not revealed to us in scripture. The author is saying, just as you don't have that information in scripture, Jesus comes. He has no father, earthly father, right? He comes out of, in a sense, nowhere, if you will. He comes, he does have a genealogy, but he's like, look, this Melchizedek came out of, in effect, nowhere. Not having beginning of days nor end of life. He's making connection between Melchizedek and Jesus. But made like the Son of God, he remains a priest continually. And the author of Hebrews is going to make a big point of this, that this order of Melchizedek's priesthood is one that continues eternally, right? Because what was the difference with the Levitical priesthood? It's like, well, Aaron was the first priest. Well, what happens to Aaron? He dies, right? Then it goes on to his son. What happens to his son? He dies. What happens to his grandson? He dies. What happens to all of them? They die. They serve for their whatever length of time they serve, and then there's a new priest, and then there's a new priest, and then there's a new priest. Well, here, the author is saying, look, no, this is a priesthood that is not passed from father to son. It is one that continues forever because Jesus Christ is this Melchizedekian priest, if you will. Um, there's another part in here. Uh, I mean, he talks about how the, the sacrifices, right? Um, you have a high priest, verse 26. Uh, for such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those other high priests, Levitical, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself, for the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever. Now, I bring all this up because the author of Hebrews makes a big deal about this because what we see here in Genesis 14 is this Christ-like figure who comes and he blesses Abram. He prides a meal for Abram. This, this, this figure who is the king of righteousness, the king of peace, he is Christ, a, a Christ figure, if you will. He's not Christ himself. He is a, a type of Christ. He, he points forward to Christ. And here we see then Abram offers him a tenth. He gives him a tithe, right? He, of all the spoil that he had, he gave him a tenth of what he had to this priest. And the author talks about how um, you give tithes to one who is greater than you. And in a sense, when he blessed him, uh, we see here the author, again in Hebrews chapter 7, um, verse 5, and indeed those who are of the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law that is from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. 
But he whose genealogy is not derived from them receives tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the, le- the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mortal man receives tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witness that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, to, so to speak. Okay, it's like it's a little hard to follow, but what the author is arguing here is when Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek, he's saying that Levi, in a sense, through being in the loins of Abraham, paid tithes to Melchizedek. All of this is to show that Melchizedek is greater than the priesthood of Levi. And again, I mention all this because this points to Christ as our king of righteousness, our king of peace, our redeemer who blesses us, who provides for us, and who um, fights for us as well. All right, so as we bring this to a close, you can go back to Genesis 14. We see here in this passage, again, a picture of God fighting for his people to rescue them as Abram Abram here, uh, in a sense, as I said, acts as a redeemer. He is Lot's redeemer. He comes out and he saves Lot. And again, much like Christ is our redeemer. Uh, This redeemer picture is seen throughout the Old Testament. Boaz in the book of Ruth is a redeemer as well. Righteous Lot needed to be redeemed from the hand of these foreign kings, much like we need to be redeemed from sin and death by Christ who is our Redeemer. And just as Abram not only refused to be enriched by the king of Sodom, but also fought to secure the promised land from foreign invaders. In a sense, what Abram is doing here is he's fighting for the promise that God gave him. He said, to, I will give you this land. Well, these invading kings have come in, in a sense, and have invaded the land, and Abram, by fighting them and fighting them off and being victorious, has sort of rid the land of these foreign kings. Again, think of what Adam should have done in the garden, right? When the serpent came in, Adam should have been the first one to go out there and crush the head of that serpent. Well, Abram here, in a sense, uh, secures the promised land Uh, by fighting these foreign invaders. But he himself did not take the entire promised land by force. He is trusting for God to provide. Again, here the Lord tested Abram's faith. And again, Abram passed the test. He trusted in the Lord, and the Lord gave him victory. And then Abram is blessed by this Melchizedek, as I said, who is a type of Christ. And then Jesus, who is the true Melchizedek, the one who is the priest king, the one who is the king of righteousness and the king of peace, he rescues us from sin and death through his once-for-all sacrifice on the cross that secures a better covenant with better blood offered in a better temple and a better sacrifice. So I'm going to stop there. Um, Next time... Uh, Lord willing, on December 3rd, 